Lay and Fakalufalayatu, Bolivanaka, Shalom, Namaste, Nihao Ma, Wohen Hao, and welcome to church, church family. I am very blessed that I could be here again. And uh, thank you so much for having me again. Really do appreciate it. And apparently, if you preach somewhere more than three times, you are now part of the church, apparently. That's what I've been told by people at Elam Pukokowi. In fact, I told, my church, I told the team at Ilum Manureo, I was trying to sort of fish for compliments and get them to beg me to stay. I said, listen, I think I, I might be called to Ilum Puki. And they, said, I was, and they said to me, oh, well, look, you've got to go where you're called. You're called where you're called, and look, we'll pray you out, and we'll wish you on your way. And I thought, that's not the response I was looking for, but that's, a, that's fine. At least I know my value now, but that's, that's okay. But yeah, very blessed to be here. And of course, Pastor Darren and Pastor Denise cannot be here, but obviously you're listening. So thank you, Pastor Darren and Denise, for having me. And uh, Daryl, uh, sorry about the blues, uh, sorry about the Chiefs this Friday as well, but that's, that's okay, and we'll get on with it. Now, church, I've actually just recovered from COVID as well. I got the news on Tuesday, a pastor there asked me to come preach, and I have to be honest, uh, COVID gave me the worst case of man flu I've ever had. You know, I was, I was calling people, I said, man, I think my time has come. I think, absent from the body, prison with the Lord, I think uh, this is my final hour, and my friends are saying, just harden up, you'll be fine, and after two days, I was, I was fine, and I was, I was healed and delivered, and now I'm here, so praise God for that. Well, without further ado, I'll open us up and I'll, with a word of prayer, and I'll get stuck into the word, okay? <clears throat> Father, we thank you that we, are, mm, that we can come together as your people and hear you speak clearly through your word. Father, we pray, Lord, that as we minister through your word, that the Holy Spirit would bring illumination that as we delve into the Ten Commandments, this would not just be a Ten Concepts or Ten Principles, but rather this would be a reflection and will give us an understanding of your heart and your purpose for humanity. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that whatever is of me, whatever is of Jake, would fall by the wayside, and whatever is of you, of the Holy Spirit, would remain and abide in the hearts and minds here this morning. We love you. We exalt you. Praise in Jesus' name. Everybody said. Now, last week, of course, church, we began our series on the Ten Commandments. Now, we're doing this series back to front, which is why we started with the Tenth Commandment. And I know Kaylin preached a great word last week on covetedness, that you should not covet, which means that you should not be jealous or envious of something that you don't have, that somebody else has. And, of course, the gospel response to covetedness is contentment, the contentment that is found only in Christ, that your heart will always long for something else or something more unless it abides in the contentment that is found only in Christ. He is our refuge. He is our completeness. He is our wholeness. He is our fulfillment. Amen. But the series on the Ten Commandments, it kind of begs the question as to what is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? Why did God issue these Ten Commandments to Moses at Mount Sinai? Now, of course, the Ten Commandments we know are not the Ten Suggestions. They are not the Ten Ideas, they are not the Ten Concepts, they are the Ten Commandments, which means they are a reflection of God's unchanging moral character and purposes. And church, because God's nature and character does not change, the commandments never change, which is why they still have application for us today. And one of those applications this church is that the Ten Commandments function as a mirror, a mirror that once gazed upon highlights our need for a Savior. It highlights our moral deficiencies, thus pointing to our need for Jesus. You know, just this morning I was getting ready to, to come here. I was looking in the mirror, and it dawned on me, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks that I am not 21 anymore. I thought, man, I said, I'm getting wrinkles. I said, are those lines? Is that a double chin? I was like, man, I used to have abs in high school. What happened? This is just, I was having an emotional breakdown before church. I've got to get myself together. I'm preaching soon. And that's because, church, that the mirror, you know, it highlights our, our, our blemishes, our imperfections. It shows us who we really are and what we really look like. Amen. 
But church, that is the function of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments function as a mirror in the sense as they show us our moral blemishes and imperfections. They show us who we really are. They expose what we really look like. In fact, the Apostle Paul put it this way. He says that the, the commandments or the law is a schoolmaster in bringing people to Christ. The Ten Commandments function to show us our sin that's highlighting our need for a Savior. And church, that's very important because we live in a culture where most people would profess their own goodness. Most people think they're good. You want to think about you know, my own testimony, how I came to faith in Christ. And often when people come to, to Christ, it's a story of God restoring them. Of they were broken, they needed restoration, and God came and restored them and brought them back together again. And praise God for that. But my story was a story of God having to break me down and humble me because I saw no need for him. And God used the Ten Commandments to fulfill that function. You know, at 17, church, at, at high school, man, I thought I was great. I thought I was a great guy. I thought, man, if there was, I, I, I loved going to school. I didn't suffer from bad self-esteem. If anything, I had too much self-esteem at high school. I thought, man, if there, if, if there is a heaven, I'd be the first in line because I'm such a great guy. In the words of Donald Trump, nobody is more humble than I am. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. Nobody does it better than me, I guarantee you. That was my mentality at high school. I enjoyed going to school. I, didn't, I never wanted to lack for anything. I had great parents, and that was me. And church, I always believed in a God, but I never saw any need for him. Until finally one day, I attended a, a youth group. <clears throat> and then I was confronted with the person of Jesus. But what resonated with me most was, what it was an encounter that Jesus had with a rich young ruler. Because I saw myself in this character. This rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers his question with another question. He says, why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that's God. Now, was Jesus denying his goodness or denying that he's God? No. Jesus, being the master teacher that he is, is asking a leading question so the rich and ruler comes to the right conclusion himself. He's saying, listen, rich and ruler, we both know only God is good. But you just called me good. Therefore, you take that thought to its logical conclusion. Therefore, I must be God. That's what Jesus is doing. But Jesus is also establishing that only God is good. And that sort of agitated my own sense of goodness. But then Jesus appeals to the Ten Commandments to answer the rich young ruler's question. He says to him, have you kept the commandments? And the rich young ruler says, bah, I've kept them all since birth. Which means, he was guilty, which means he was guilty of violating the ninth commandment, which is, you shall not lie or be a false witness. Because the reality is nobody can keep the commandments. Nobody can keep the law of God. Because keeping the law is not just about external obedience, it's about submission and the condition of the heart as well. But then Jesus appeals to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods beside me when talking to the rich and ruler. He does this by saying this. He says, listen, one thing you lack... Sell your possessions and give them to the poor and follow me. And the rich young ruler turns his heels, walks away, because the story says he had much property. This exposed the true condition of the rich young ruler's heart, that he already had a God, but the God that he believed in was not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was the God of property. He worshipped his property. He had another God. Jesus used the Ten Commandments to expose the true condition of the rich young ruler's heart, that he was not, in fact, this moral, virtuous person he believed himself to be. And church, that was me. 
God, by his grace, used the Ten Commandments to expose that on the surface I was, quote-unquote, a good kid, that I had a lot of things going for me. But the reality was I had a heart beneath the surface that was in desperate need of of forgiveness and redemption. Now, all all that to say this, church, is that yes and amen, the gospel is for people who are broken, who need restoration and healing. Praise God for that. But the gospel is also for people who have it all together and who think they're good like me. The Ten Commandments expose our sin, but also expose our need for a Savior. Amen. Now, church, the Ten Commandments function more than a schoolmaster than bring us to Christ. They function more than just merely a mirror, but rather they give us instruction for living today as well. And the commandment we're going to focus on uh, this, this morning is the Ninth Commandment, which is you shall not be a false witness of your neighbor. Now, usually remembered as you shall not lie. Typically, people recite this. Now, of course, lying is forbidden in this commandment. But that's not all the commandment addresses. And we know that when we consider the context of which the commandment was given, its immediate context, it was given. And the immediate concern of the ninth commandment is legal testimony. Um, which is because, you know, as people, as sinners, you know, we're sinners, we're inclined to tell lies and you know, to make ourselves feel better. So in a court of law, God made sure he put in place laws and regulations to prevent people from lying or telling falsehoods in the court of law. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, it tells us how witnesses are to conduct themselves in a formal hearing before a judge in ancient Israel. Listen, church, anybody found guilty of bringing false testimony against their neighbor was to be inflicted with the same punishment that false witness hoped to inflict on his neighbor. Knowing that you might receive the penalty that you hope to impose on another through false testimony, this was meant to be a powerful deterrent to prevent people from lying in court. This connection with causing harm through legal testimony tells us that the ninth commandment bars us from committing any act that, we, that may bring undeserved suffering on another person, any words or deeds that unjustly destroy the reputation of another, harms them in court, otherwise promotes evil, falsehood, or deception. All of this is prohibited in the ninth commandment. Again, truth, this is not just about lying with words, but rather it encompasses any form of promotion of deception, slander, or falsehood. Now, how many of you know, church, that lying, deception, and falsehood is inherently destructive? Now, I've seen churches be destroyed and divided over the promotion of deception and lies. I've seen, that, I've seen families being pulled apart because of falsehood and deception. In fact, I've seen people robbed of their own self-worth and self-esteem because lies that were spoken over them, they began to believe, and they became entrenched in their self-identity. The function and purpose of lies, slander, and deception is always to unjustly destroy the reputation of another. You know, church, it's, it's no coincidence that one of Satan's other titles is he is known as the slanderer. And to slander means to bring false accusation or charges to someone. In fact, he's even called the accuser. He is constantly conjuring false accusations to God's people and those who, who love Jesus. He's a liar. In fact, Jesus said he is the father of lies. All lies ultimately originate in him. In fact, his entire modus operandi is deception, slander, and falsehood. Now, church, I say all that to say this, and I say this with as much love and compassion as I can muster. Church, listen. Church, when we slander another, when we promote falsehood and deception of another, when we entertain untruth and lies, Church, listen, we are partnering in the work of the enemy. 
Jesus said this. He says, the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And family, we partner with the work of the enemy to destroy God's people and destroy his work. We become vessels of deception, slander, and false accusation. Amen? Now, you may say, well, I mean, what about the lies that I cling to or the lies that I've told or hold on to? They're not malicious. They don't hurt anybody. They don't really hurt anybody else's reputation. It's really just about me. Uh, what's the big deal if, if I tell those kind of lies that don't seem to hurt anybody else or anybody else's reputation? Now, friend, even if that were true, my question to you would be this, is that what about your own reputation? Lies and deception not only threaten to destroy unjustly the reputations of others, but they threaten to unravel our own reputation as well when we're caught in a lie. Your church, one of the worst experiences I've had, at least relationally, was when someone I love very dearly, in fact, my girlfriend actually, uh, she looked at me, she looked at me with a look like she never knew me because she was hurt and broken because I told a lie to her that I thought only affected me and wasn't a big deal. Church, it takes a life of consistency to build a reputation of integrity, but it only takes a moment of deceitfulness to have it taken away. And then you have to build it up again. But church, if we partner with God, if we partner with God, we partner in truth. In fact, Scripture says He is the God of truth. In fact, as the people of God, we are called the pillar of truth. We are called to gird ourselves with the belt of truth. In fact, Scripture says our worship to God is not acceptable to Him unless it's offered in spirit and in truth. We are called to defend the truth, walk in truth, and hold on to what that is true and noble. Church, we are people of the truth. Amen. In fact, church, we are a peculiar people in this culture because we actually affirm that there is such a thing as truth. In a pluralistic postmodern culture that wants to subvert and undermine any claim of truth, that says the only truth is that you have your truth and I have my truth. That you can sort of believe what's true for you and I can believe what's true for me. Because truth is just about, you know, being your authentic self. Just living out your own narrative. That's what's true for you. Because truth is ultimately just personal and subjective perception. But church, as the people of God, we are that city on the hill that says truth is not a matter of subjective perception. No, truth is that which corresponds with how things really are. Truth is that which is consistent with reality. More specifically, truth is, not that, truth is that which conforms with the character, will, and purpose of God. Even more specifically, truth is not just a set of propositions that correspond with reality. No, truth was personified and embodied in a person, and that person is Jesus. And church, if we call ourselves disciples and imitators of Jesus, that we are called to embody and walk in truth. We are people of the truth. We speak truthfulness. And we live lives that are consistent with the truth. Amen. Now, church, if you're taking notes, write these down. Let me give you three points of what it means to be the people of truth. <clears throat> Number one, remember who you are. Remember who you are. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, the apostle Paul reminds the people of God that they're not to, that to put away falsehoods of other people. That they're not to walk in deception any longer. But before, but before Paul gives this command, he actually lays a foundation and reminds the people of God who they are. This is what he says in Ephesians 4, uh, verses 22 to 25. You were caught 
with regard, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put, away, to put on the new self, created to be like Christ in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put away falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. You know, Paul is saying, family, that the old self was characteristic with deception and deceitfulness. This defined the person we used to be, that this old nature was defined by deceitfulness and corruption. But how many of you know, church, that when Christ died, your old self died with him? Amen. That when Christ was buried, that old nature that was defined by deceitfulness and deception was buried with him as well. And when Christ was raised from the dead, we were raised with him into newness of life to walk in truth. So church, if that's true, if the, if the person we used to be died with Christ, if this old nature that was defined by deception and deceitfulness was buried with him, and if we were raised to new life in Christ and to walk in truth, family, how can we promote deception any longer? If the old has gone and the true and the new has truly come, if we have taken off the old self and put on the new self, if we are truly new creations in Christ Jesus, then how can we promote deception and lies anymore? If we have been made righteous by the righteousness of Christ and now walk in righteousness, if we have truly been set apart for the purposes of God and consecrated for Him, then how can slander be the tip of our lips anymore? Paul says we are all these things because we remember who we are in Christ. Therefore, we put away falsehood and deception. Amen? Secondly, we replace untruth with God's truth. <clears throat> in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, it reads this. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we bring every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Cheers, mate. Thank you. And make it obedient to Christ. Now, church, this is an awesome passage. And if I could give this passage a title, it would be God's truth versus the enemy's untruth. It would be God's word versus the lies and, and, and deceptions of the enemy. It says, it says that our weapons are divinely powerful for the pulling down of fortresses. Now, the fortress family was a heavily fortified building or castle that was meant to hold people captive. And once you were in, there was no escape. It was inescapable. And family, the fortresses that Paul has in mind here are the fortresses of lies and deception. They hold people captive. It's interesting, church, that the same word in, in Greek for the word fortress is the same word used for prison and the same word used for tomb. So these fortresses that hold of lies and deception that hold people captive become people's prison until they end up being their tomb. Church, listen, people die in the tombs of deception and lies. How many of you can say, truth, there were times in your life, even now, that you felt held captive by lies and deception being spoken over you? That you felt the weight of condemnation of the, over the lies and deception that people spoke over you? These fortresses of lies and deception hold people captive. But family, as the people of the truth, as the people of God, we smash these fortresses with the word of God and we bring every thought captive to Christ. Family, for every lie that's been spoken over you, 
God has a far more compelling truth that debunks it. For every word of slander that's been spoken over you, over you, God has a promise and encouragement grounded and founded in his word that consumes it. For every word of accusation the enemy has brought to you, your Holy Spirit, who is the advocate, leads you into all truth that consumes that lie as well. We replace untruth with God's truth. When the enemy confronted Jesus in the garden with all his distortions and manipulations of truth, how did Jesus respond? He said, it is written, it is written, it is written. We replace untruth with God's truth. Thirdly and finally, we respond with encouragement. You know, church, when I think of encouragement, I think of one of my really good friends at Ila Manurewa. Some of you may know him. He's a Canadian guy called Luke at uh, Ila Manurewa and a really good friend of mine. And one of the things he does better than anybody I know is that this guy goes out of his way to encourage people, especially people who are the subject of slander, deception, and gossip. You know, I've, I remember being in a room once where Certain people who are not there to defend themselves were just being flogged by a group of people. Character assassination, slander, misinformation, deception, lies. They were just being destroyed by a group of people. I'll never forget that Luke was in their room as well, and Luke looked them all in the eye and said, you know what? So-and-so is a great person. The hand of God's on their life. We're all on a journey. God has a plan for them. We're all in the process of growing and becoming more like Christ. And, and many of the claims that you're making have nothing to back them up other than your own insecurities. And church, you could see, you could feel the room, the atmosphere in the room begin to shift as he, as he was talking because fools were exposed to their folly. I want to encourage this church, as, people, as the people of God, as people of truth, that we would respond to false accusations, slander and deception with bringing truth and encouragement. How awesome would it be, church, if we became a people who were known for actually saying nice things about each other behind each other's back? Amen? Could you imagine going, you're hearing some murmurs and someone going, hey, did you hear about the girl Sasha at Elon uh, Did you hear about her? And they go, what about her? Oh, she's got a servant heart, that girl. She's a, she's a woman of the house. She's, she's humble, loves people. Yeah, she's a great girl. What about someone going, hey, did you hear about that guy, Matt Taylor? You hear, what he gets up, you hear what he gets up to during the weekend? What does he do? Oh, he actually helps people. You know, he goes to their homes and he you know, tidies up their homes and he spends time with them and he, and he encourages them. Is that what he does? Yeah, that's what he does. Great guy. How awesome would that be, church? That we became a people actually known for saying nice things about each other behind each other's back. We respond, with this, we respond to deception, lies, and slander as the people of God with encouragement and truth. We dismiss gossip. And ask yourself, listen, is that helpful? Do I need to know that? And is it actually true? As the people of truth, we respond with truth and encouragement. Amen? If I could have the band join me on stage, please. And church, if you're ever wondering, if you're ever questioning what to say or what not to say, filter your words to the Apostle Paul when he says this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, now, dear brothers and sisters... One final thing, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable, right and pure, lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Friends, ask yourself as you speak about another, does what I have to say, is it true? Is it honorable? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it worthy of praise? 
As the people of God, again, we respond in truth. Now, friends, just in closing here, I just want to remind us that we are, as the people of God, we are people of truth. Remember, we talked about how truth is that which corresponds with how things really are. Truth is that which is consistent with reality. More specifically, truth is that which, is, which conforms to the character, will, and purpose of God. But even more specifically than that, truth was personified and embodied in a person, and that person is Jesus. And if we call ourselves disciples and followers of Jesus, then we have to be people who embody and who walk in truth. You know, the Bible says that in God there is no shifting of shadow or turning in God. There is no deception or deceitfulness in Him. And family, as the people of God, again, there should be no turning of shadow or deceitfulness in us as well. We refuse to partner in the work of the enemy through slander, deception, and untruth that destroys. Instead, we partner in the work of God by speaking words that are consistent with how things really are, by living and speaking in a way that conforms to the character of God, and by encouraging others as well. You know, friend, you may be sitting here and you may not know this Jesus that we speak of, that we've been talking about it as Christians. And perhaps we're even searching for truth, which is what brought you here this Sunday morning. But let me encourage you, friend. Jesus said this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Not only does truth correspond with reality, but truth by its very nature is exclusive. Jesus is not claiming to be my truth. He's not claiming to be your truth. He's claiming to be the truth. And he's claiming to be not one of many ways to the Father, but the only way to the Father. Here's the truth, friend. God loves you. He's created you for a relationship. But there is a barrier of separation between you and God that's been fostered by a thing called sin. And the wages of sin or the consequences of sin, the Bible says, is death. But God loved you too much to keep you in your sin. He loved you too much to keep you in the condemnation of your sin. So He sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross as your substitute to pay the penalty for your sin so you could be forgiven and restored into a right relationship with God. Through Jesus, God offers forgiveness, relationship with God, and a life of purpose and truth when you come to know Him. So friend, if that sounds like you, if you want to know what the truth is, if you want to get right with God, with every, um, with every, eye, closed, every, with every eye closed and head down, I want you to raise your hand, family. No judgment, no looking. We just want to know <clears throat> if you want to make a decision for Jesus today, just raise your hand. <clears throat> awesome. Well, church, I'd love you to pray this prayer after me. <clears throat> Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need forgiveness. Father, I thank you that you sent your son to die for me, to die in my place, so I could be forgiven and restored into a right relationship with the Father. Today is a new day. I trust in you and submit to you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, church, thank you so much for listening. If I get you all to stand, please, and we're going we're gonna to close up with a song of worship. Praise God for all that he's done. Thank you. Yeah.